Okay. Um, all right. Well, on that note, we're going to get serious now. Um, I am, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I don't have a lot of things that I get super obsessed about. I don't, I don't kind of get into things a whole lot. I don't know what that is about me. When people ask me, like, what's your hobby? What do you like to do? I usually have a hard time uh, coming up with anything. It's just kind of not me so much. Like I said, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. My most recent thing was like a year ago. I got weirdly into, has anybody ever heard of Norwegian death diving? Yeah! Okay. <laughs> That's right, because I, I was so obsessed with it that I was showing everybody, including Danker. So, Norwegian death diving, it's these guys who jump, they started jumping off of high dives, but now they just jump off of tall buildings and cliffs and basically try to get as close as they can to belly flopping on lakes or pools or rivers, and then at the last second, tuck their bodies in before they die. Um, and uh, hence the name Norwegian Death Diving. And so I got, for whatever reason, I could not stop watching death diving videos for a while and showing them to people. But, but generally, that's just not kind of me. I, like I said, I don't have hobbies. I don't have foods I obsess over a lot or, or things like that. There's some people he, uh, who are just kind of naturally like that. How many of you are like that kind of person that when you get like a hobby, you go all in? Like you buy all the stuff, you research all over the place on the internet. Okay, there are those kinds of people. I know some of those kinds of people. One of the names that always comes to mind in that, and a number of you guys know this name, is Kyle Young, right? Uh, Kyle Young graduated last year. Kyle Young, whatever Kyle gets into, Kyle is into, right? And sometimes it's random. Uh, last year I told some of you guys about how he just randomly got into uh, homing pigeons and like heard somebody talk about him and then all of a sudden he's like building a coop in his backyard. He's buying pigeons. He's send, trying to send messages to people by a pigeon, right? So Kyle does this and some of the things he gets into are like really productive. Like uh, for a while he got into like buying and restoring boats like yachts and and literally, he went all in. He's working on the engines. He learned upholstery so he could work on the cushions on the inside, everything. Sometimes the things Kyle gets into are not so productive. Uh, like the time he got fascinated by this idea of whether a person could eat an entire ream of paper in one month. And so, like, he made this bet with a friend, and he, like, went, I mean, literally, was obsessing about this. He had all these plans for how he was going to eat a whole ream of paper. He was going to blend it and make smoothies out of paper so he could drink it. He was going to make um, little, like, turn it into, like, mush and then make capsules so he could swallow it. Like, he had this whole plan. Kyle goes all in on things when he does stuff. I, like I said, am not that kind of person, um, generally. But the truth is this. As human beings, there is a tendency, I think, in all of us to move to extremes, uh, especially when it comes to things like belief or opinion, that we tend to have a hard time sometimes finding middle ground. That's, that's why politics gets so volatile in our country, because people don't just, when they argue with someone, don't just argue for kind of like a neutral middle position. They tend to push themselves so far away from this that they move onto the whole, uh, a whole other realm. It's like this pendulum that is swinging. History, actually, we tend to do this um, in simple things like fashion. In the 90s, you wanted your jeans as big and baggy as you could possibly get them. And then like in the aughts here, as we got to those and into the early teens, skinny jeans became in. Now that's starting to swing back out. It goes kind of back and forth like this. Um, the church has wrestled with this a lot. 
that, that they get caught on certain beliefs, and what they'll do is sometimes they'll, they'll try to correct a false belief, and they do that by pushing all the way over to the other side. For much of church history in the early years, there was a bunch of debate over Jesus' nature. We believe Jesus to be fully God, fully man. But what would happen is someone would come up on the scene and they would say, no, I think that Jesus is mostly man. And the church would react to that and go, no, 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 he's not mostly man, he's God. But, but what they would do is they would push so hard that they would lose the humanity of Jesus until finally someone would start to push back against that and then they would lose the divinity of Jesus. And they did this going back and forth in some of their debates and their councils for a while. Uh, in the 90s, one last example. In the 90s, uh, when I was a teenager, one of the ways that you could really show you were a Christian was by uh, only listening to Christian music. And there was kind of a trend for a lot of people to really kind of push back and not listen to secular music because that's bad music. We don't do that. And, and it was kind of like pushing all the way. And then people started to go, this is silly. This is legalism. We don't have to do this. But what happened is people kind of just decided to listen to anything and everything. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best way either. There's this tendency to swing back and forth, back and forth, and go to extremes. Paul wants to avoid that, and the Corinthians are struggling. Last week you heard about it. In the Corinthian church, you had some people who were saying, when it comes to sex, anything goes. Anything you want to do is fine, because it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's my soul, it's my spirit that matters. And then there are others who are going, no, 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 no. Sex is something we should be careful about. In fact, we should avoid it entirely. Even with your spouse, you shouldn't be doing that, because we need to be spiritual people and not care about fleshly things like that. This is what Scott talked about. By the way, if you weren't here, you really need to go back and listen to that. Scott did a tremendous job explaining the biblical position on sex. We've got, we record all of our, uh, all of our teaching it's on podcast, The Table OSU, and you can go check that out. You really should. Um, but, but Paul is dealing with that, and, and in chapter 7, what he ends up dealing a lot with is marriage. Throughout history, some people in church have said uh, that being married is kind of a weakness, that the truly spiritual people will stay single, like monks and nuns and priests, and those were the really important people. And then sometimes we swing to the other side and we go, if somebody's single, it must mean they're immature, and, they're, and that's something to kind of be avoided, and we sort of have gotten to a place where we uh, idolize marriage. Paul wants to avoid those things. And so what Paul is doing is trying to um, walk a tightrope between these. And in chapter 7, he'll talk a lot about marriage and singleness and give us not an extreme position, but a biblical, because he is obviously writing the scriptures at this moment, but what God's opinion on these things are. Here is the last verse you read last week. It was about sex. People were saying you shouldn't have uh, sex even with your own wife. And this is what Paul says. No, no, no. He says, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says that is actually, no, we don't avoid sex within marriage. Sex is actually a gift from God that is a part of oneness. It's a part of marriage in which we become one together. And so he says, this is a good thing. We don't deprive ourselves of it. But then, in the very next verse, he turns and says something unexpected. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. So, Paul says, yes, get married. 
and have sex. But this is not a command to you. This is not something that I'm telling all Christians they have to do. In fact, he says, it's kind of a concession. And he says, in fact, I wish that you could be as I am. What does he mean by as I am? He means single. He means I wish that you... I wish that everyone had the ability to be content as a single person and to be able to live and stay that way. Paul says, actually, I believe that this is preferable. And then he continues on in verses 8 through 9. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, single. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So why would Paul say that it is better to be unmarried? Why would he say, I would prefer if more of us could be that way? Well, we'll actually find out next week. Next week, in the second half of chapter 7, that's when he really gets into this idea, in a lot of ways, of singleness. But even though he sees singleness as preferable, he does say here, he recognizes not everyone has the gift that he has to be content with this to be okay with this. And so he says, it's actually fine. He's happy to admit that marriage is great as well. It can be a good thing. And if that's not you, if you've got a strong desire romantically, sexually, it's okay. Get married, he says. Next, he'll go in and give a command that is probably among the the most disregarded commands in all of Scripture. One that the church really kind of pushes to the side and likes to ignore a lot of times. Verse 10 To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, first, just a a quick clarification. He says, this command I give is not I, but the Lord. Now, what he's saying is, it's not my opinion, but this is what God says. He's not saying that. When he says the Lord, he's referring specifically to Jesus. And he says, the command that I'm about to give to you is one that we've already been given through Jesus. That is, when Jesus was on this earth, he taught this exact command. So I'm just relaying to you, I'm just passing on to you what Jesus has said. And that is that a man should not divorce his wife and a wife should not divorce uh, her husband. And then he goes on to say this, that if she does or if he does, then they should not ever remarry unless they marry the spouse that they broke up with. And this is, he's quoting here from Jesus in Matthew 19, which we'll get into in a little bit. But this is a text that he throws out here, and Paul says that this is important. You must not divorce. If you do, you remarry the same person. These are bold commands. These are often ignored commands. These are hard commands to follow. So does Paul really mean what he seems to mean right here? Verse 12. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, clarification again. When he says, 
what I'm about to say to you says, not the Lord, but I say this to you. I used to think that what Paul was doing there was like turning inspiration off, turning his inspiration for the Holy Spirit and going, okay, this is just Paul talking here. This isn't, the Spirit's not moving me to say this. That's not true. Actually, it's, it kind of goes back to what we said a little bit ago. What Paul is saying is we don't have a specific command from Jesus on this. He didn't teach about this when he was here on this earth, but here is what you should do. And Paul believes that the words he's speaking are from God. As an apostle, he is speaking the authority of God. And so his command is this, that if you are married to an unbeliever, if you are a Christian married to a non-Christian, you don't divorce that person. You stay with that person. Now, later on, this will be next week, in verse 39, he'll say that if a person, like if a widow wants to get married, that's wonderful, but she should marry someone in the Lord. Paul believes that we should marry someone in the Lord. What he means is, If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to marry someone else who follows Jesus. Because it's not going to work real great if your highest commitment in your life is not your spouse's highest commitment. And so he calls us to marry believers. But in a place like Corinth in the first century, it would not be uncommon for people to come to Christ because they hear the gospel while their, belie- while, while their spouse that they've been married to for 10, 15, 20 years does not. And so when Paul's talking about believers married to unbelievers, he's talking about two people who were both un- or non-Christians and then one of them became a Christian. And, and some of the people thought, well, yeah, the, actual, the obvious thing you do is you divorce that person. They're not, they're not a believer like you are, so you should divorce them. Paul goes, no, no. Actually, I'm commanding you, I'm telling you that you should stay with them, that you should stay faithful to them, that you should love them and continue to be with them. And so this is really important. He says, actually, if you stay with them, that that, he used this phrase and says that the unbelieving husband or the unbelieving wife is sanctified, is made holy by their spouse. What does he mean by that? I don't think he means that that person is saved. If, if my wife is not a Christian, that she is a, therefore, made holy and saved by being married to me. I don't think that's what he's saying because uh, just a few verses down, he's going to say, we don't really know if you stick with your unbelieving spouse. Maybe they'll become a Christian. Maybe they'll be saved. Maybe they won't. So I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, then all of a sudden that unbeliever is now kind of in the realm of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is working inside that Christian's life and heart. And so therefore, every day this unbeliever is interacting with the Holy Spirit through their believing spouse. And so are those children. And so Paul says, no, I don't want you to break up. I want you to continue to love them. I want you to continue to care for them, to stay with them. Verse 15, he says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. And husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. So the implication here, he says, that I recognize sometimes an unbelieving spouse may not want to stay with you. If you're committed to Christ and His kingdom and you love and care about these things that they don't care about, that may not end up working and they may choose to bail on you. And if that happens, Paul says, that's okay. Um, Of course, again, the implication is they leave you because you're following Jesus, not because you're being a jerk to them, right? Not because you're being unkind. You ought to love them and care for them. But if they choose to leave, he says that's okay and you are no longer bound in that situation. 
Otherwise, you stay the course, hoping that God will maybe bring them to faith through your relationship with them. And as I said, this whole thing here, this whole uh, section of Scripture where Paul says, you stay with your spouse through thick and thin, believer, unbeliever, no matter what, you do not divorce them. And if you do, you never marry someone else unless, unless it's the spouse that you broke up with. This is one of the least regarded commands in history and even in the church today that we come to texts like these and we go, I know what it says, but, but you don't know my specific situation. You don't know the kind of things I'm going through. You, you don't know how unhappy I am. You don't understand that my spouse has changed. They're not the person that they were when I married them. You don't understand it will be so much better for our kids to not live in a house where their mom and dad are fighting all the time. And then when we do divorce, we don't usually even try to come up with reasons or justifications why we should be remarried to someone else. We just kind of do it. It's a very normal practice within the church, but the Bible seems to indicate that it shouldn't be. Let me say real quick, I know that there are a number of people here tonight who come from families where your parents are divorced, and, and probably a number of you divorced and they've remarried, and you've got blended families, and, and I want you to know real quick, I, I'm not trying to like I'm not trying to dog anybody. I'm not trying to trash them or anything like that. Listen, the, the whole point of the Scriptures is that we all mess up, is that we, we all fail and we, we all are in need of grace and forgiveness. And God's grace and forgiveness is always big enough to cover our sins. That's the really good thing. So I don't want to dog anyone in this. And I, I don't believe, I, I know a number of divorced people, people who have been divorced and some are remarried and some who aren't. And I've seen the Holy Spirit active in those people's lives. So I believe that, this, that God can redeem those situations. And the Bible even gives a couple of instances where it is okay to divorce, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But for the most part, Jesus and His Word are very uncompromising about this idea. They give very little wiggle room. They call us to a very high standard of faithfulness and commitment to marriage. Why is that? Why, even when it's hard, does Jesus want us to stay in marriages like that? That's what we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But first, we'll take a break. All right. Um, three questions I want to try to address here as we, uh, as we come into this second half or the next 20 minutes. First question is this, uh, why is God so anti-divorce? Second, is divorce ever okay? Is there an instance where it's ever okay for a person to do that? And third, what does this have to do with me? Uh, as, a, as a most of you, the vast majority of you, an unmarried college-age person, what, what do I need to, why do I need to know these things? We're going to tackle those three questions actually in reverse order. But first, I told you that Jesus had a teaching on this, that Paul was actually quoting from a specific instance where Jesus spoke on this topic. And Jesus speaks on this topic, and when he does, he uh, is kind of checked on it, and then he doubles down so hard on his standard that he calls people to that his own disciples go, eh, maybe marriage isn't for all of us. Like, if that's the standard, if it's that high, then maybe we shouldn't do it. 
Uh, the text comes in Matthew 19. If you want to turn there, you can, you can head there. It, it comes as a result of this question that he gets from the Pharisees. They come to him one time, and, and it's not actually a question, it's, it's a test. They know their own answer. They just want to see if maybe they can get Jesus in a little bit of hot water on this. Maybe get him to say something controversial. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. It says, some Pharisees approached him to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? So they said, the question is a trap. Most people in first century Judaism, and and probably the Pharisees agreed with them here, believed that you could divorce your wife for any reason. There were actually two main schools of thought. One was that you could only divorce your wife for unfaithfulness or adultery. The other was that you could only, uh, that you could, uh, divorce your wife for anything that you found unpleasant. Now, wives actually could not at this point, they could ask their husbands for a divorce if they were unfaithful, but they couldn't actually uh, divorce, which isn't because the Bible said it should be that way. That's not, it wasn't God's plan to make it unfair. That, that was just the way the culture was operating. So the question was, how can, what, what needs to happen in order for someone to be able to get a divorce? And, and most people seem to trend towards, you can divorce for any reason. If, if you're not pleased, if you're not happy, you can do that. And the Pharisees come to, to kind of see if they can pin Jesus in on this. Here's how Jesus responds. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus here quotes from Genesis 2. Haven't you heard in the beginning God made them male and female, and a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he takes them back to the beginning of Scripture. Why then, the Pharisees asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that once you are divorced that you do not marry someone else because he heard Jesus say these words here. That if you are married to someone and you divorce them and then you go and marry someone else, Jesus says that is the equivalent of adultery. Because you made a, a covenant with this person. You promised yourself to this person. And you are one flesh with this person. And now you have moved into sleeping with someone else who is not that person. And that's why Paul says we don't divorce and we don't remarry. The disciples, when they hear this, have a lot of the same questions that would go through our minds. That goes through many people's minds today. Which is things like, yeah, but, but what if, Jesus... I mean, that's, that's a high standard. What if, what if I marry someone and they change? Or what if they promise me that they would change and they don't change? Or what if I marry someone and I find out that they aren't who I thought they were? Or, or what if they're, he's lazy? Or what if she lets herself go? Or what if I'm miserable in this and you don't understand? I'm, I'm so depressed. It just makes sense. And Jesus doesn't let up. And so the disciples even say in verse 10, His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, 
it's better not to marry. They go, I, I don't know if, it, if we can live up to those standards. It's too risky. Maybe it's better not to do this. And Jesus doesn't go, you know what, you're right. Maybe I was a little strong. He goes, yeah. He says, some people actually choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. And maybe, maybe that's what you need to do, Jesus says. And so Jesus draws a very hard line on these things. So three questions. We'll do them in reverse order. The first one is this. What does this have to do with me? Why do I need to hear about this tonight? Here's why. First, because many of you will at some point be married. And at some point, some point your marriage will be difficult. And at some point in every marriage, there will be a time when you will wonder if you have made a mistake. And for some of you, it will go beyond wondering if you made a mistake and you will feel to the core of your being that you made a mistake. And you will be tempted to get out of that marriage feeling like it is got you trapped and like you're suffocating and like you're drowning in it. But I want you to remember when that time comes that Jesus has called you to something more. And this is also why it's important to choose well when we marry, to be sure that we are choosing someone who is growing with you, someone who is committed not just to you but to Christ and to His kingdom. Because you want to marry someone that you will be walking alongside of. And, and the second reason that's important for you to know this is whether you're married or not, this is a standard that the whole church is called to. And one of the reasons that people have ignored the commands of Scripture on this for a long time is because the church as a whole has ignored the commands of Scripture on this. And we have not walked besides our brothers and sisters and encouraged them even when it's hard to stick with it. And we've not walked beside them and, and held them and said, listen, I want to remind you of the covenant you made. I want to remind you of what Jesus called you to. And, and I want us, whether we're married or not, I want us to be the kinds of people who love our brothers and sisters enough and who love God's Word and, and what He tells us enough to try and hold one another to these standards. So, second question, is divorce ever okay? Is there ever a time when, when a person is allowed to do that? Yes, actually. The Bible lists two specific instances in which divorce is permitted, though not required, but permitted. And we actually read both of those tonight at different times. You may have caught them. In uh, the text we just read, Matthew 19, Jesus says that you should not divorce unless in case of adultery. If a spouse has been unfaithful and they have left you for another, if they are, if they are committing adultery, someone else having an affair, then divorce is permitted that it is permissible. The second one we saw was actually in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, if your spouse chooses to leave you, you don't want them to, you're fighting for the marriage, you want to stay, but they leave. They choose to walk away from the marriage. You can't help that. And Paul says at that moment, you are not bound anymore in that marriage. That that is okay. And, and the reason why I believe these two things are mentioned as okay is because actually in both of those instances, you're not the one severing the relationship. You are not the one severing uh, the marriage. It's actually being severed by the one who is leaving you for another person or just leaving and walking away. And that's why Jesus says you're, you're not actually committing adultery to marry someone else because your, your relationship was ended by that other person. Your marriage was ended by that other person. So I believe in those moments it is okay to divorce. It is permitted at least And it is even okay, I believe, to remarry someone else 
in that moment. There is a third one, actually, um, that the church has kind of added, has kind of held to for many years. We usually break it down into three A's. Okay, Christians have held to there are three instances in which it's okay, and that is adultery, abandonment, and abuse. If if uh, you or your kids are physically in danger, if if there is uh, abusive relationships going on there, then first of all, seek the help of your brothers and sisters. Seek the help of the church. And there should at least be, there has to be in that moment, a period of separation with the hopes for redemption. But if that will, does not happen, then in most cases, we would, we would say, yes, absolutely, divorce is okay in that instance for the safety of you, for the safety of your kids. Now, two quick things I want to say real quick. First of all, you may be wondering, what if a person gets married to someone after an illegitimate divorce? What if I divorce my wife and it was for bad reasons and God says I shouldn't do that and Jesus says if I go marry someone else then I'm, that's committing adultery. So what do I do in that situation? Is that marriage now forever adultery? Am I supposed to, should I break off that marriage or what should I do? Um, I, I believe no. I, I believe that even though that was a wrong thing to do, even though that was a sinful thing to do, to divorce your spouse and remarry, I believe that Jesus can still redeem this. And that you, Paul will use this phrase uh, a lot in the second half of chapter 7, that you should remain as you are. So the condition that you're in, you stay in. I, I believe there should still be a, if I do that, there should be a repentance in my heart. That I should be repentant and broken over this divorce that I caused. That I should make amends with the people that I hurt my wife and my children, my parents, all those, my community around me, there should be that, but I, I stay where I am. I believe that that's probably what God calls us to do in that moment. Second, I would say this, that permitted does not always mean best. That I may be permitted to divorce my wife, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best thing. Uh, if my wife, Amy, who's a wonderful woman, and I never foresee this happening, but if for whatever reason she were to commit adultery, she were to have an affair with another person, that would break my heart. That would just undo me, it would feel like, in a lot of ways. But if she were to come to me and, and be repentant about that and feel sorry about that, technically I am permitted to divorce her. But I don't know how as a person whose entire life has been built on grace and forgiveness that has been extended to me over and over and over and over and over again, I don't know how I wouldn't want to be willing to try and extend that same grace and forgiveness to her. Am I allowed to? Yes, I think so. But we are a people, the whole Christian faith is built on this idea that I was forgiven for many offenses and many wrongs, and I want to be the same kind of person who extends that out to others. Third, here's the third question. Why is God so anti-divorce? Why is He so uncompromising about this that you've got these kind of three areas, abuse, abandonment, adultery, but really for anything else you ought to stay with that person? Uh, let me give you a few answers why. First is this. Because divorce takes God's work and design and rips it apart. Did you notice, I don't know if you caught this, that Jesus, when the Pharisees ask him, can you divorce someone for any and every reason? Jesus doesn't actually like answer their question directly. At least not at first. Instead, what he does is he goes and takes them to the scriptures and said, haven't you read, uh, I'll actually look, uh, I'll, I'll read it to you real quick. He says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? 
And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man, or let man not separate. Um, so they come to him, and they want to know, how can you get out of a marriage? But what Jesus wants to do is talk about God's design for marriage. He doesn't go, let's talk about all the ways where you're allowed to. He says, no, 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 let me just take you back to the beginning and let's talk about God's design. Let's talk about its purpose and its beauty. The Pharisees want to ask Jesus when it's okay to leave and Jesus wants to talk about why we stay. Because God has designed it. Whoa. I do that like once every other week. It's just kind of a thing. Get used to it. Uh, God has designed it that male and female, that human beings would come together. And when they do that, Jesus says something interesting happens. A whole new entity is formed. That you don't have just uh, two different parties that are now kind of together in community. You actually have like one body, one flesh that comes together. And so a divorce does not pull two parties apart. It rips someone in half. It's taking one flesh, one body, and ripping it in half. It's tearing against God's very design for how we were meant to live and this beautiful gift that He has given it. Uh, Second reason why God is so anti-divorce, because God hates what it does to people. In Malachi 2, that's the last book in the Old Testament, uh, Malachi says, Do you want to know why God is not listening to you when you pray? You're crying out and you're giving all these offerings in the temple and he's not responding to that. Do you want to know why? Malachi says it's because you have neglected and turned away from the wife of your youth, that you have been unfaithful to them and you have left them. And then he goes on to say this, that he who hates and divorces his wife covers his garment with injustice. That is unjust, he says. That is wrong what you are doing to her. And it is not fair. It ruins her in so many ways and it messes up yourself it messes up them it messes up kids it does incredible damage to everyone involved and God says I am against that in every way Uh, I've had two friends who have come to me wanting to get a divorce Uh, both of them have told me in that moment truthfully it would be the best thing for our kids I just want to do it for our kids because we're always fighting there's so much tension in the marriage it would just be best for all of us if that ended. And I've had to tell them, listen, statistically speaking, biblically speaking, research level speaking, that is just not the case. That it is never like research has shown that kids being in a two-parent home where the marriage is rough and tense is still better than them having to grow up in a single-parent home. God hates what divorce does to people. And so he does not want that to happen. Third reason that God is so anti-divorce, that Jesus is so against it, is this, because our marriages are about something bigger than just ourselves. Our marriages are about something bigger than just ourselves. A person could get the idea, when you read 1 Corinthians 7, especially we get into next week, that Paul is not a huge fan of marriage. That marriage is kind of for those people who are, you know, don't have enough control. Okay, if you got to, you got to. That's fine, whatever. But if you actually go and read other places, it's because of the context that he's writing in and some of the stuff he's dealing with that he kind of writes that way. But if you go read the way he talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, no one puts marriage on a higher plane than Paul 
and the way he talks about what it is and what it does. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through the, through the end of the chapter. We're not going to go there, but there he says that marriage's ultimate purpose is to be a living, breathing picture of the relationship that Jesus has with his church. That the way... Jesus and his church interact is to be like, or the reason that the way a husband and wife interact is to be the way that Jesus and his church interact with one another. That husbands should love their brides just like Jesus loved his church so much that he gave up his own life for her. And wives are to display the same kind of faithful faithful devotion to their husbands that the church is meant to be showing to Jesus. Commitment, complete commitment to him. And this is why God hates divorce so much, because in that sense, what divorce is, is fake news. If I walk away from my wife when things get difficult, I am telling a false story. I'm telling a false gospel. I'm telling a story that's not true by my marriage, because our story, my story, is that I and we are part of a bride that was made for her husband, Jesus. And that finds her greatest joy in loving and walking beside him and being faithful to him. And that in spite of her failures and shortcomings, in spite of my failures and my shortcomings, in spite of my own unfaithfulness to Jesus, in spite of your failures and unfaithfulness to Jesus, Jesus loves his church and he will never walk out on his bride. He forgives over and over and over again. He loves us when we are not very lovable. He is faithful all the way to the end. That is our story. And that is the story that God designed marriage to tell. And that's why no matter how hard marriage may get sometime, marriage, by the way, I don't want you to hear me sound like it's just awful. No, marriage is wonderful. But it has difficult times in it. And no matter how hard those things are, we stick with it because Christ sticks with us. Because Christ loved His church in that way. That's the kind of story that is worth telling. And so, married or not, our goal in our life is to demonstrate God's faithful love and His grace and His forgiveness by giving it to to others over and over and over again, by extending that same love and grace and forgiveness in our marriages, in our friendships, and in every other part of our lives. Here's what I want to do. I want to give us just a couple minutes uh, to reflect on this truth, that God has been faithful to us over and over again. And maybe you just need to stop and just let that be what you think about. All the ways that God has been faithful even when you've been unfaithful to Him. Even when you've turned your back on Him. Even when you've gone to other things that God loves you that much. Jesus loves you that much. And maybe the next step if you've got time is to begin to think about what will it look like for me to demonstrate this kind of relentless faithful love to others around me. Take a minute. Think on that while the band comes up.